0: Over the past weeks in relation to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been considering the answer to the question of the psalmist in Psalm 8 where he writes, What is man that thou dost take mind or thought of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him is the way that many of us have heard that translated. Or the son of man that thou dost care for him. Why would God do anything for sinful, wicked, rebellious man? Why would he send his son Jesus from glory to dwell in poverty and humiliation among men? Why would he then send his son to the cross and have him crucified? Why would he do that for us? In all our sin and wickedness. And we came back with the answer first to the question of why redemption? Why do it at all? As we saw in the Scriptures, basically and predominantly, it was out of His love and mercy. Because of His love, He redeemed us. And also we saw that it was unto His glory. That even the redemption of sinful man with the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ brought glory to God. You remember Jesus saying, now is the Son glorified and the Father is glorified in Him. In reference to Him going to the cross. So why redemption? Because of His mercy and unto His glory. Glory. And then we sought to answer the question, why the Incarnation? Why did He leave glory and come to dwell among men? Why was that necessary? Couldn't God have just declared people saved? And the answer again was no. It was necessary for Him to come to deal with the real sin problem that people had. He had to come to deal with our sin. And He had to come by way of birth of a virgin, because he was not, he could not be tainted with the sin of Adam. That sin of Adam could not be imputed to our Lord, so he had to be born of a virgin. Otherwise, he would be a sinner just as we are. And that's the incarnation, born of a virgin. Also, we saw that it was out of obedience to the Father, that he came... As the Father sent him to dwell among men. And then we sought to answer the question, why the crucifixion? Why did Jesus have to die upon the cross? And we saw there the answer from the book of Hebrews that it was to fulfill. The ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was merely a shadow of the reality that was to come. A picture to the nation of Israel throughout the centuries and throughout generations that there had to be a blood sacrifice. But Christ was not a shadow. Christ was the real sacrifice given unto God for sin. The blood of bulls and goats accomplished nothing in redeeming man. But the blood of Christ did. It actually paid the sin debt of His people as He died upon the cross. Then we also saw that it was unto His joy that He would see the travail of His soul and be satisfied. And we saw in Hebrews, it was because of the joy set before Him that He went to the cross. Imagine that. That Jesus went to the cross with joy in his heart because he knew as he paid your sin debt, you would be able to be with him throughout eternity. Had he not paid the sin debt that you owed, you could not go. But his sacrifice made you perfect so that you could be with him in glory. And that was joyful to our Lord. What a great thought! That Jesus went to the cross out of joy to be with us. And then last Lord's Day, on that uh, Sunday that we called time appropriate for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was about that time of the year that our Lord rose from the dead. We sought to answer the question, why the resurrection? Why was Jesus raised From the dead. And we said there were four basic points from which we drew the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was so vital and so indispensable to our faith because it proved the validity of his deity. Now, he told the disciples that he was Christ. And he said that he would give his life. No man could take my life from me. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up. He said that he would give his life a ransom for many. And he said that he would rise again on the third day. Now, anybody could say that. Richard could say that. But can he do that? Only God could pay the sins of men. And only God could could say what would happen, that no man could take my life. I give my life and I raise it up again. So we see in Romans chapter 1 that He was proved to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection from the dead proved the validity of His deity. Then we saw that it proved the validity of His ministry. Now Jesus taught many things throughout His life among men. Taught a lot about heaven, that there's life after death. Taught a lot about judgment, that those who are not saved would go to hell. He taught lots of things. But again, anybody could teach lots of things. But the proof of his teaching was seen in his resurrection as the women got to the tomb and the angel said, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. All that He taught was true. All that He gives us in the Scriptures, all that we see is valid and believable because He rose from the dead. So the validity of His ministry. And then from 1 Corinthians, we sought to see that it proved the validity of Christianity. As Paul said, if He were not raised from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. In other words, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus were not raised from the dead, we're fools. We're duped. This is a sham. And we should just close it down and go home. Throw your Bibles away. That's what the liberals today would have you want to believe. That it's all a sham. All a joke. The History Channel every year comes up with new proof that Jesus' bones have been found. Things like that. They would love you to think that it's all a sham. But He was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. The resurrection is real. So our faith is real. Christianity is real. We do not follow a dead Savior. We follow a living, real Savior who rose again on the third day. So Christianity is valid the validity of Christianity seen in the resurrection of Jesus. And then the last thing we mentioned was it proved the validity of eternity as he was the first fruits to come forth from the grave, showing us that all of us will be raised from the dead, saved and lost, all have life after death. Those of us who are in Christ, go to be with Him in glory. But there is life after death proved by His resurrection. Now this morning, I want to ask you to turn, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, consider with me again what things must have been like for the disciples. Put yourself back here At about this time, this is 40 days after he uh, was raised from the dead. But let's go back that whole, I don't know, six weeks or so, maybe even a little bit more. Back to when the disciples first saw things starting to, as we could say, fall apart. First of all, Jesus started telling them that he was going to die. They didn't want to hear that. Then he's betrayed by one of their own. Imagine what they must have felt like. Judas, one of their own, comes up to him and leading an army from the Romans and the group from the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and he kisses him. Betrays him. Then the one that you've been following for three years is arrested and carried off by the Roman cohort. And then Peter, one of these disciples, Denies that he even knew him. And how that must have hurt his heart. And it even, the scripture even tells us he went out and wept bitterly because he denied his Savior. He denied Jesus. The one who called him the Christ, the Son of God. Now says, I don't even know him. And then they see him beaten, spat on, humiliated, punched, crown of thorns on his head, dragging a crossbeam through the streets of jerusalem out to golgotha where he is summarily crucified no thought to who it was by the roman soldiers just driving nails into his wrists and into his feet hanging him on a cross where he dies gives up his own spirit and then is speared in the side by one of the roman soldiers all hope is lost Everything we thought was going to happen. We thought He was the Messiah. We thought He was going to be made King. And now He's dead. And so your hearts are just sunk. Discouraged. And then what happens? First day of the week, the ladies say that He's raised from the dead. So there's sort of a stir in the camp. The disciples are, what's this? What's this thing? And then that evening, there He is standing before you. And the text, the Scripture tells us that for joy and excitement. They were there. They had joy and excitement over the fact that our Lord Jesus was dead and now He's raised. Discouraged and yet He's back. And how much they must have been excited and joyful over that. But now 40 days have passed. And He leaves again. So that the up and down life of a disciple of Jesus. But look at the text here. As it says in verse 3. To these the disciples he also presented himself alive or living after his suffering by many convincing proofs. The Greek is very strong there. The Greek more or less says that is by the strongest proof which a subject is susceptible. The absolute most convincing proof that He was alive. And that's why we saw that they were uh, so excited. They knew He was dead and they knew that He was alive. And now He tells them that they're there gathered. And He says that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But look down a little bit further. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's what we saw last Lord's Day morning when we had the early service that we are witnesses of these things. They are witnesses of these things. And the language here is the same. The witness is one who is to go forth and testify. And it comes from the Greek word martus, which means to be martyred even. And many of them were. But they went forth and witnessed, testified to Jesus. And why did they do it? Because they were convinced that he was alive. There was no doubt in their minds that the one who was dead is now alive. But then he ascends up into the heavens. He tells them they're going that he's going to go. They don't want to hear that. Then he's arrested, beaten, crucified, dead. So he's gone, as it were, into the tomb. Now he's back. But then, after this, he leaves again. They had to be so excited, so joyful to see him, and now concerned because he was leaving. But all this time, 40 days, the Scripture tells us, that he was among his disciples. He did a lot of wonderful things. We don't have too much from the Scripture, but we do have the fact that He was able to go through walls and appear in the upper room where they were. He showed himself with them. He ate with them. He was on the shore one time and prepared food for them to eat as they were out fishing. So we see all these things that Jesus did. We saw in the scriptures from 1 Corinthians 15 that he showed himself alive to over 500 people at one time, which was a lot of people. So he was doing all these things. But then we learned that he was doing some things that the scriptures obviously have not had record of for us to have. Because it tells us here in the text. Now they were gathering. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it time? Is it at this time that you are restoring The kingdom of heaven. So they're asking him questions. If you look back in verse 3, it says that he was appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he was teaching them. They were asking him questions. In other words, there was a lot more going on that we don't have a record of in the Scriptures of what Jesus did over those 40 days. Wouldn't you like to know what he was teaching them? I'd like to know what he was teaching them about the kingdom. Well, actually, we do have a lot of what he taught them regarding the kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That as he gave his followers all these things, as he taught them about the kingdom, now he leaves them and we want to see why. Why did he leave them? Why didn't he just stay? He was raised from the dead. He was there before them. He taught them for 40 days. Why didn't he stay and teach them for 2,000 years? Why didn't he stay? Why isn't he here now? So the question today is why the Ascension? Why Redemption? Why the Incarnation? Why the Crucifixion? Why the resurrection? Why the ascension? Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? And the first answer, and I've got five. So whether or not we get through all of them today remains to be seen. But I want to begin by seeing that the ascension was for the bestowment of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 4. He commanded them to stay, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he ascended into heaven. So the first thing is for the bestowment of. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and they are going to be witnesses. Now, before we actually see this take place, I want you to turn back to John's Gospel in chapter 16 and hear what our Lord said to the disciples about this. Back in John chapter 16. We're not going to be able to open all of this up and, and expound all of what is given here But in John chapter 16, Jesus says to them in verse 5, But now I am going to Him who sent me. He's going to go back. He's talking about His ascension. I'm going to go back to Him who sent me. Or to Him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're sorrowful because Jesus is saying that He's going to be leaving them. So in response to their sorrow, He says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth. Now that's an interesting statement, is it not? Jesus, the very divine Son of God, says, But I tell you the truth. What else would He tell them? Would He tell them a lie? It is not Possible for God to lie. Part of His nature is absolute truth. And Jesus, being the Son of God, could never have lied. So why would He say this? But I tell you the truth. It is to draw attention to the importance of what He is about to say. To point out the power Of what comes next. And so he says. I tell you the truth. This. What I'm about to say. Is important. And then he says. It is to your advantage. That I go away. For if I do not go away. The helper shall not come to you. But if I go away. I will send him to you. So it is to your advantage. It is advantageous to the disciples that I go away. You know, we may want to have Jesus here. We may want to have Jesus among us. But what he's saying is, and we may not be able to understand it, but it is to our advantage that he has ascended Back into heaven. And I want to see, for our purposes, just a couple of basic points from our Lord in this teaching that He tells them. And I'm just going to break this down into three points. First of all, He was ascending to the Father, He's going. He tells them in this passage that. I am going back to Him who sent me. So the first thing is that this is the predetermined sovereign plan of God. That Jesus came to dwell among men for a time. He accomplished the work which the Father had sent Him to do. This is what He Himself said. I have accomplished the work that the Father sent me to do. So the Father sends the Son The Son comes, lives a spotless, perfect, sinless life. Gives His life a ransom for many, dies on the cross, is buried, and then rises again on the third day. But the predetermined, sovereign plan of God was that following that, He would return to glory. I am going back. So there's no fighting it. There's no debating it. There's nothing you can say that would be wrong about it. It's the plan of God. I'm going back to the Father who sent me. Secondly, it is only then that the Holy Spirit would be given. The Holy Spirit would not be given unless and until He ascended. That's what He says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come. So if he did not ascend into heaven, he would not have been able to send the Holy Spirit. For he says, for I'm going and I'm going to send him to you. So part of the predetermined counsel and plan of God was that the Son would ascend back into glory, and send the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, back to men. The third thing is, that would be to their advantage. He's going to go. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And that's good. That's good for you. That is to your advantage, to our advantage, to our benefit the holy spirit is going to help them and we're going to see more of this as we go along so put your finger there in john or a marker in john as we go back to acts and now acts chapter 2 that was the promise made by jesus that he was going to ascend that he was going to send the holy spirit that's the promise made by our Lord. Now, let's see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, so this happened on what is commonly known, the day of Pentecost. This is an exciting day. This is a big day for the church. Don't let the Pentecostal or Charismatic movement Take away the greatness of what took place here. And by the way, Pentecost was not invented in 1903 or six by the Pentecostal movement. In fact, Pentecost was not invented by the Christian church. You'll notice that it was the day of Pentecost, which was already there. Pentecost was what we commonly know as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of harvest demanded by our Lord in the Old Testament. It was held at the end of the wheat harvest and it commemorated the giving of the law by Moses to the people of Israel. That's what Pentecost was. That's what was happening. It wasn't something that the Christian church brought about or started because the Holy Spirit was poured out that day. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And all these people that we're going to read about were there for the Feast of Pentecost because according to Exodus chapter 23, it was one of three times when men would travel to Jerusalem to appear at the temple before the Lord. It was a feast that they came to to Jerusalem. That's what Pentecost was all about. Now, verse 2, if you look in your Scriptures, they're there on the day of Pentecost. They're all together in one place. And we don't know exactly how many were there, but if you look over the page to chapter 1, in verse 15, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the gathering, a gathering of about 120 persons. That were there now we don't know whether it was the same size gathering being spoken of in chapter two, but it's possible it may even be likely but here we have the fulfillment of what Jesus promised to the disciples in John sixteen as we read in chapter two and verse one, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So here we have the first, the original disciples, if you could say, gathered together there, and the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And it was evident. It wasn't something that they made happen. It wasn't something that happened as they came to the front of the church and people prayed over them and made it happen to them. This was the sovereign directive of God that the Holy Spirit, in fulfillment of what He promised, was poured out upon His followers. His followers are there and they receive the Holy Spirit as Jesus said. The promise. And now the pouring out occurs. Jesus ascended and did exactly what He said He would do. Poured out the Holy Spirit upon His disciples. They received what Jesus promised. Now, He said that this would be to their advantage. And we're going to begin to look at that a little bit. But don't miss the fact That Jesus, as God, again, did precisely what He said He would. Everything He taught, everything He gives you in the Scriptures is truth. You can depend upon it, rely upon it, believe it, because Jesus does what He promises. And so He pours out The Holy Spirit upon these. And immediately we begin to see the power. The promise, the pouring out, and now the power. Beginning in verse 5. Well, beginning in verse 4, they begin to speak in other tongues. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But let's go through now and see what happens. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, remember, a lot of those people were there because of the Pilgrim Feast of the Harvest or Pentecost. That's why they were there. They had traveled from all over, even the known world, as it says, and they were there in Jerusalem. So all of these people, were there from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, what sound? The sound of the rushing wind. The sound of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples. As I said, it was discernible. It happened and they could tell. It was a discernible event. They could hear it. They could feel it with the rushing wind. And they could see it with the the tongues of fire upon their heads. This was a discernible miracle of God pouring out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And they begin to receive power as they speak in these tongues. And all of these people from every nation under heaven hear this this sound. And the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled. This was a spectacle. This was every bit as miraculous as the times when Jesus would have those days that He would heal people and people from all over would come to Him and He would heal them and then they would be there for days without food and then He would feed them. It was a spectacle. It was a miraculous event. This was a miraculous event. The people heard the rushing of the wind. They came together to to see what was happening. Wouldn't you? I mean, like tornadoes make news. And so there's news. Hey, did you hear about what's going on? What's where's the crowd going? Everybody starts rushing, going down to where the disciples were. They couldn't hide anymore. They might have been hiding. They couldn't hide anymore. Everybody was coming to where they were because they heard the sound of the rushing wind and and there's something happening and we're all hearing them speak in our own language, going on a little bit further. They were amazed and they marveled. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes And Edomites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the districts of Libya surrounding Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What is the gift of tongues? I tell you, on the authority of Scripture, they were not speaking gibberish which nobody can understand. That would not be a miracle. They were speaking the languages that they could understand. And in that, they were testifying to the mighty deeds of God. Testifying to the mighty deeds of God as they spoke to these people. And these people heard them in their own language. And so already within one day, they fulfilled what Jesus said in chapter 1. As he said in chapter 1, in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And in chapter 2, people from all over the world were there, and they heard immediately. Yes, they went out and preached in various surrounding countries and countries, Far away countries even. But on day one, people heard of the mighty deeds of God in their own language from all over the world. That's power. Jesus said, it's to your advantage. That's power. And so they preached and they taught in the languages that these people could hear. And they had boldness. Those who had just been towering in fear are now emboldened to preach and to teach and to speak the Word of God. Now, we'll see more of how the Holy Spirit affected the church and how it was to our advantage. And we'll see that throughout this study. But for now, let's consider the second thing. The first was For the bestowment of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus ascend back into heaven? Because He poured out, He bestowed the Holy Spirit upon the church. The bestowment of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, why did He ascend? He ascended for the establishment of the church. The bestowment of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. The church always being God's plan. Now, we're going to come back here to the book of Acts, but once again now, turn back to John. And this time, John 14. John 14. As we see, first of all, it was for the establishment of the church in the sense of their understanding. In the sense of their understanding. Now, any of you who... Knows anything about the disciples and the followers of Jesus, you will remember how often they seem to be rather clueless. And he was doing all of these things. He's, don't bring any leaven. Is he talking about leaven for bread? No, no, no. And how many times Jesus had to correct the disciples. It seemed like they just didn't quite get what was happening. But look what he says to them in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 down to verse 26. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He's going to teach them all things. Now a few moments ago I mentioned wouldn't you like to know what Jesus taught the disciples while he was there with them for those 40 days? Well, the Holy Spirit brought that back too. And so that's what we have in our account in the Gospels. That's what we have in our account in the Epistles. Peter wrote two Epistles. We have what Jesus taught him. We have What Jesus said to him. The Holy Spirit brought back everything that Jesus taught them. That is why the Scriptures are reliable. Yes, they were written by the hand of man. But as moved by the Holy Spirit, as all prophecy, it is God-breathed. That's what Peter said. The Scriptures are Theopanustas, God-breathed. And they're not just from man, they're from God. And it was Peter also who mentioned the teaching of the Apostle Paul, which, as the rest of Scripture, he said. So already the letters of Paul in the day in which Peter wrote were recognized as being Scripture. The things brought to their mind by the Holy Spirit. But Paul wasn't there with them. Oh yes, Paul did meet with Jesus. Remember he said he went out into Arabia and met with our Lord and saw Jesus and was taught by Jesus and the same Holy Spirit that taught the rest of the disciples and that brought back to the minds of the rest of the disciples brought those things back to the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the epistles in the New Testament. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit poured out that gave to the church the establishment that they needed. The truth in doctrine and teaching. This is what the church needed. They needed the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we have now in the Gospels the faith and practice and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this in the epistles. We have this in the accounts given in the book of Acts for us to follow. This is how we have our Christian doctrine. This is how we have our Christian teaching. That the church is supposed to go by. Why is it in our day that so many churches have Thrown it away and seldom ever even refer to the Bible in so-called sermons where the Bible, maybe they read a verse and they stick it on the side and they go on and talk about who knows what, jokes, stories, gimmicks, football scores, whatever they feel like, rather than using what Jesus promised would be to our advantage. The words that He spoke brought back to the thinking of the disciples by the Holy Spirit. And so here in John chapter 14, Jesus says to them that they would be empowered and understand all that He taught them that the Spirit would bring them back to their remembrance. What a great promise to us. That what we have is accurate. What we have is reliable. Why would we listen to people who bring things beyond the Scriptures? You know, there's two major denominations who like to think, well, more than two Three, at least I could think of, major so-called Christian denominations in our day that go beyond what the Bible teaches. One of them says that what goes beyond what the Bible teaches is more important than the Bible and actually is over what the Bible says. We have a man and what he determines to be truth is even more important than what the Bible says. Other denominations have people speaking in other tongues and they say that's revelation from God. Well, if it's revelation from God, it should be in the Bible. Another so-called Christian denomination has published not only their version of the Bible, but several other books. The Pearl of Great Price and the doctrines and teachings of Joseph Smith and things like that. And they say they're just as valuable as the Bible. What is it going to be? The Bible is not only the inspired and infallible Word of God, it is the complete Word of God. There are no more apostles to whom the Holy Spirit is bringing back what Jesus said today. We have it all. It is reliable. It is believable. And it is to our advantage. Just think, we don't have to wade through what may be or what may not be revelation from God. We have it. We don't have to worry about what so-and-so said. Oh, my goodness gracious, that, that count contradicts whatever I've heard in the Bible. Should I believe Him? Don't listen to them. You have the Bible. Go by what the Bible teaches. That's why it is so important for a congregation, for a people, for a church to use the Bible. It's what God gave us. It's His greatest gift to His people. Or at least one of, because you can always have people that argue, well, what about this? It's one of, certainly, the greatest gifts that God has given to His people. His self-revelation. His word. His truth. The Bible. And so in the sense of understanding, the Holy Spirit was poured out and brought back to the church the things that they would need to know. It also teaches us what a church is supposed to even be. The New Testament teaches us, and you read through the epistles of the Apostle Paul and the things that he taught, this is what an elder is supposed to be. This is what a deacon is supposed to be. This is what a church is supposed to do. We'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of their gathering and their practice. But it is from the New Testament that the leaders and the ministers of the the church are shown to be who they are. Again, churches today ignore the qualifications of men who are supposed to preach and teach. And they put forth people who had no clue. I know in our sphere of family. That there's one church that took a, a man who was recently saved and made him a teacher. Why? I know of another man who failed at several jobs, became divorced, and is a minister. Why? Because they ignore the teaching of Scripture regarding what a minister or a leader of the church is supposed to be. Why ignore one of the greatest gifts of God to the church, the Scriptures. So it is in the sense of their understanding regarding the establishment of the church that Jesus ascended, poured out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought back to their minds the things that they needed to know for the establishment of the church. It was also in the sense of their gathering. Why would the church Gather and what do they do when they gather? People were added to the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, and as they were added to the church, they gathered together. Look in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, as we consider the church gathering, and we read in verse 15 and following, Our Lord Jesus teaching this to the disciples. Now, I want you to keep in mind that there are many people today who call the church the alternative plan of God because the Jews rejected Jesus. They had to come up with this thing called the church. The church is plan B. You ask yourself this question as we read through this. Did Jesus think the church was plan B? Listen to what he says. And if your brother sins go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The Ecclesia, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as to you as a Gentile and as a tax gatherer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, I continued reading that because so many people cling to that passage where two or three are gathered together in my name. But the context of that verse is in the context of the church. The church. The church was not plan B. God had always known that the kingdom would be given to the ones who would bear fruit, the church. And more specifically, that passage of just a handful gathering in his name, or two or three gathered in his name, had to do with not just the church, but church discipline. Church discipline. What is church discipline? You can hear crickets chirping. People have never heard of church discipline today. Church discipline is when the elders and the leadership of the church gather together and for the protection of the body have to deal with one in their midst who has fallen into sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. Go to them. Go to them. Deal with them. Try to set them straight. Try to teach them. Exhort, reprove, rebuke. All the things that an elder is supposed to do. But Jesus says, go to them. Reprove him in private. If he listens to you, good. If not, take alone the elders. If not, bring them before the church. That's church discipline. And the ultimate consequence of church discipline is what we commonly call excommunication. Where you have to Make sure that somebody is removed from the church body, and it's meant for two things primarily for their own good, to let them see that their actions have consequences, and they may be in danger of the judgment of God. We see this practiced in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, you've got one in sin, get that one out, and you have to practice church discipline. The second thing is not only for that person, but to protect the body. To protect the sheep from wolves who may come in. Wolves in sheep's clothing is not a saying invented in the 20th century. It was what Paul warned the churches about. That wolves would sneak in looking like the sheep. And devour the congregation. Don't let that happen. Elders today are to be watchful of the flock. And to protect the flock from those who would bring harm, false doctrine, false teaching, all of these things. And how do we know what false doctrine is? How do we know who to protect the flock from? From the Word of God which has been given to us as our guide. We go by what the Word of God says in dealing even with the church. This is totally foreign to the average church today. The average church today takes church membership so frivolously. You come down an aisle on your first visit and you can sign up and join a Baptist church. Come on down. We'll wait on you. Come on down front. Sign a card. If you haven't been dunked, we'll dunk you, And then you're automatically a member of the church. Do you realize that people from cults know that that's what Baptist churches do and they infiltrate that way? You could have a radical Islamic Muslim come to a Baptist church and be made a member today. And the elders wouldn't even know who he was, wouldn't know what he believed, wouldn't know if he was saved, because they never really ask. And that's why the churches are the way they are. And that's why the church has so little influence on our society, because they are just playing church instead of taking seriously the Word of God as to what a church should be. The only church discipline that is practiced in the average Baptist church today is when they get mad at the preacher and vote him out. That's the only person that ever gets voted out of a Baptist church anymore is the preacher. And in my case, it's happened because I preached the Word of God. They don't want that. They want to be made to feel good, to be made to feel happy. They don't want the Word of God. And what is that? They want those who will tickle their ears. This is what has become the average church today. So, we've seen so far, why the Ascension? For the bestowment of the Holy Spirit and for the establishment of the church in the sense of their understanding of the Word of God and in the sense of their gathering and what they are to do. We'll pick up with this next Lord's Day. There's no way I can get through the rest. The rest of it's really good too. I'll whet your appetite for the advancement of the kingdom and for the development of your faith and for the excitement of His coming. These are the things we'll pick up with, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. Let's pray.